Good evening, everyone. My name is Dawn Chatty. I'm formerly the Honorary Secretary of the CBRL, of the Council on British Research in the Levant. I'm really happy to have this occasion uh, to introduce a collaborative event with the London Middle East Institute. And it's a chance also to thank uh, Dr. Hassan Hakimian for uh, agreeing to co-host this event here at SOAS. So tonight, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Andrew Patrick, who is an assistant professor at Tennessee State University. Andrew completed his PhD uh, here in the UK, and some of you might have picked up. I was trying to probe a little bit to figure out why did an American decide to come to England to do his PhD? Of course, I discovered that he did his master's degree here in London, and then I guess wanted to explore the English countryside a little bit more, so ended up in Manchester for his PhD, which of course was uh, very much on the topic for today. His talk tonight, The Wilsonian Imaginary and Ottoman Lands, is going to really explore the history, well, going to explore the outcome of the King Crane Commission, a commission that sometimes we think of as having been forgotten, but then there are periods of time when it ends up being mentioned over and over again. Uh, but uh, he's going to look at this, that political moment that it spawned and also the legacy of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, uh, his initiation of the League of Nations, and that whole notion of the significance of the self-determination of populations in terms of, of their government. So. Let me hand over, and hopefully we'll have time for some question and answer afterwards. All right. Hello. Thank you all for coming. Yeah, I want to thank SOAS and London Middle East Institute, um, as well as uh, the Council for British Research in the Levant. Uh, they actually helped fund some of the uh, some of the research for this book, um, so this lecture can be seen as sort of a of a thank you uh, to them. Uh, that was about ten years ago when I was in grad school. What we're going to do tonight is to explore this thing I'm calling the Wilsonian imaginary. Uh, and I am arguing that this was applied via this thing called the King Crane Commission. If you haven't heard of that yet, I will explain it all to you. Um, but we're going to go through uh, these sort of four steps uh, as, as I go. But I will explain them all um, in uh, due course. The reason I was asked to come here is because I wrote this book. Uh, and uh, this came out in 2015 for uh, I.B. Torres. Um, there's only one other book out on the King Crane Commission uh, proper, this commission uh, in 1919. But this book was written between 1939 and 1941. Uh, and it wasn't published until 1963, strangely, because the author, Harry N. Howard, went into the State Department during World War II and could not publish anything that was about world affairs. Uh, and so he published it in 1963 without doing much more research, and then it sort of sat. And people have written short articles about it, and it showed up in many different academic works, and it shows up on websites and public discourse uh, a fair amount. But uh, not, there's not been another book until I wrote this one, and there's a lot more coming out about it now. So this talk's going to be a mix of sort of formal uh, sort of uh, lecture plus a lot of less formal stuff, less uh, me just sort of talking about certain images. There are going to be a lot of uh, images on the screen. There's going to be a lot of words um, as well. But let me get started here with the formal introduction, and then we'll move to more informal parts. On June 26, 1919, the King Crane Commission made a decision. The Paris Peace Conference had sent this commission 
to the Ottoman lands, mainly at the behest of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and they were to ascertain what the people of the region wanted for their political future. They had, at this point, been in Palestine interviewing people for about two weeks. The region's people had been calling, to quote a group the commission referred to as the Muslims of Jaffa, for the independence and unity of Syria with full autonomy for Palestine. This request was well beyond what the peace conference was willing to grant, and even what Wilson intended for the commission to consider. Before hearing testimony for the rest of their journey, the commission decided that they would read Article 22 of the League of Nations Covenant to the interviewees. This went as follows. Certain communities formerly belonging to the Turkish Empire have reached a stage of development where their existence as independent nations can be provisionally recognized, provisionally recognized, subject to the rendering of administrative advice and assistance by a mandatory until such time as they are able to stand alone. The wishes of these communities must be a principal consideration in the selection of the mandatory. Remember that, a principal consideration. We'll come back to this. The reading of Article 22 did not stop the people of the region from calling for independence, nor did these calls for independence influence the Commission's final recommendations. In its, uh, in its final report, the Commission did recommend, um, no, excuse me, did not recommend independence for any part of the region, uh, nor did the Commission members believe that the people of greater Syria were developed enough to govern themselves. This vignette shows the, the great disconnect between the Europeans and Americans who were so beholden to imperialism as partly justified by the scientific racism of the day, and the people of the Ottoman lands who saw no reason why they should not be independent. This talk explores the gulf between three things. The first is what I refer to as the Wilsonian imaginary. And this is borrowed um, from a historian by the name of Leonard Smith. Um, at Oberlin College. Um, and this imaginary was established by Wilson's pronouncements. This is what, the first part of this is what Wilson actually thought the world should be, what the new old world order should be. The second is people's beliefs about Wilson and his views. Meaning, how did people translate Wilson's pronouncements into their own context? And when I talk about this, I'm talking about people like this group, the King Crane Commission, who was supposed to go to the region, to the Ottoman lands, and see what the people wanted for their future within the confines of what Wilson had said. But also the people themselves, because Wilson's pronouncements, at least some of them, had made it to the Middle East. And people had heard this and been citing him, uh, his speeches, for a couple, several years already. And so they translated Wilson's pronouncements into their context, too. Um, the last thing that I want to look at here, too, is the actual wishes of the Ottoman people without looking um, through the Wilsonian lens as well and to see what the King Crane Commission recommended versus what the people were actually asking for and see what the overlap was there. And this, I think, tells us a little something about um, what was going on in American minds at the time versus what was going on in Ottoman minds at the time. And so I'm going to wander through these four things that I had at the beginning. We're going to go back a little bit, because in order to understand the King Crane Commission, you have to understand what the relationship between the United States and the Middle East was uh, before 1919. And uh, I'll do some quick, uh, some quick slides on that. 
And I, then I'm going to spend some time on looking at Wilson's actual world views because uh, they have been taken to mean many things by many different people. And I want to look back at his words and figure out how he was so misunderstood in many contexts. And I want to see how these views were applied by the King Crane Commission. And I also want to see how, as I mentioned, how the peoples of the region's uh, wishes actually overlapped with what the King, King Crane Commission said and how they employed Wilson's words to try to get what they wanted. So first, let's go back in time here to the relationship between the, uh, the Ottomans um, and the United States, the Ottoman Empire and the United States. Uh, so as many of you probably know, the main relationship between actual human beings, Ottoman citizens and American citizens, came via missionaries. There, starting in the 1820s, American missionaries started going to the Ottoman lands and setting up schools and setting up, uh, setting up uh, hospitals and, and various things around, including Syrian Protestant College, later AUB. This is the building that was destroyed in 1991 at the end of the uh, Lebanese Civil War. And they had, importantly here, so we might know that this existed. Importantly here, though, these missionary interests were backed by very important people. And coincidentally, very important people to Woodrow Wilson. You had Charles Crane of the King Crane Commission he was a major supporter of Robert College in Istanbul and the Constantinople College for Women. He was also Wilson's top campaign donor for his presidential campaign. And even more importantly in this context, you have Cleveland Dodge, American copper magnate. Crane was the heir to Crane toilet fixtures and plumbing fixtures. Uh, and uh, Cleveland Dodge was a copper magnate. His family was big in copper. And he personally funded much of Robert College he, his family also uh, funded much of the Syrian Protestant College or uh, donated quite a bit of money. And also importantly, once we get to World War I, two of Cleveland Dodge's kids, who were 20-somethings, uh, were in the Ottoman Empire. And they stayed there throughout the war. And we'll come back. And this one of them, Bayard Dodge, later became the president of the Syrian Protestant College. You also had cultural links that many of us have probably heard about. Starting in the 1880s, there was major immigration from the Ottoman lands, particularly Lebanon and particularly Mount Lebanon, uh, to the uh, United States, uh, settling in New York City and in other uh, places. We have the most famous of them here, Khalil Gibran, um, but there's also some other famed ones, I mean Rihani and so on. And there was uh, my immigration or, or migration, return migration, uh, a lot of remittances uh, that changed the economy of Lebanon, um, and as well, as well as various cultural links. And there was limited trade, but trade I want to talk about for a second, partly because that's what I'm doing research on lately, and I like talking about the, the, the new stuff. Um, and so here we are. If you like numbers, you have numbers here. This is uh, some numbers that I found at the U.S. Commerce Department about trade between uh, the uh, United States, and these are U.S. exports to the Ottoman Empire. And you can see these are selected uh, things. And you can see the final numbers down here. The two main ports of the Ottoman Empire uh, that were Smyrna and Istanbul. Beirut was also a port at this point, but the numbers weren't as large. And you can see these are finished goods, right? I want to talk about a couple of them rather quickly. Petroleum. And as 
In the 19th century and into the 20th century, the US was, of course, an exporter of petroleum to the Middle East. Things have changed. Uh, and this is actually an aberration. Standard Oil, the US oil monopoly, our uh, near monopoly, uh, had lost, had dominated the market in Ottoman kerosene from the 1860s to the 1880s. Uh, then the Russian oil fields uh, came online in, uh, in Baku. And they rather, uh, rather cleverly started packaging their oil in almost identical cans to the standard oil. But they priced it lower. And so they lost the market. And the quality of the Russian oil was actually a little better um, too, uh, according, to many, uh, according to many consuls. And so this number only shows up after about 15 years of having no American oil in the region because of what was going on in Russia in 1905, the unrest and the destruction of a lot of the infra infrastructure in the Baku oil field. There's also these Singer sewing machines. This is from the era. And this is actually quite a few sewing machines here. There were agents all through the, uh, uh, all through the region. They employed local people as agents. Uh, and these were manufactured in the United States and here in the UK, I believe in Scotland. Um, but they cost about $40 a piece. So if you do the math, that's quite a bit, of, it's a lot of sewing machines. But if you look down at these numbers, and we don't have the relative numbers here, US exports uh, to the Ottoman Empire, or I should say, uh, Ottoman imports, imports from the United States were only one to 2% of their overall import. The manufactured goods from Europe were dominating uh, the Ottoman trade import market at this point. So let's go to the other side. What were the Ottomans sending to the United States? As you can see, it reflects the Ottoman economy to some degree. It is not, as or not industrialized much at all. These are largely agricultural goods. You have opium that had been a major export uh, throughout the late 19th century. Uh, you had, as you can see, carpets and rugs. Um, and you have uh, the American Tobacco Company, already very active in the Ottoman lands. Um, in, uh, this is 1909. Uh, they had actual facilities there for processing and whatnot. Um, and then you have this. This is licorice root. I just had to look it up because I did not know what licorice root looked like. Uh, and uh, you had a candy company, uh, McAndrews and Forbes, or they were aff affiliated with many uh, candy companies. Um, licorice root grows naturally in the Ottoman lands, uh, and especially like around Aleppo and up around there. And so they would harvest this and, and process it to some degree and bring it back to the U.S. for sodas and candy and whatnot. So, these numbers were larger, and according, uh, the, the, according to the best statistics that I can find, talking somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of Ottoman exports going to uh, the United States. And there needs to be more research on this because a lot of these numbers are a little dicey, but they look good in terms of the, the very specific they, and as far as this goes. But anyway, let us uh, keep moving on here. So during the war, during the war, uh, you had, well, in the lead up to the war, you had these relations that I'm talking about here. They were strong, they were solid, but not as big as the British and French. The Americans had missionary interests there. They had all these colleges. They had some trade, but maybe not as much as the British and French did, even the Austro-Hungarians as well. Um, there wasn't as much to tie the US and the Ottoman Empire together, particularly something that might make them go to war with each other. Uh, and once the war started, the Americans were watching. Even in Ogden, Utah, this is a paper from way out in Ogden, Utah, they were watching, this is when the Turks uh, uh, entered the war, or they always say the Turks, and I keep, I, I revert to that inadvertently, I say the Ottomans. Uh, and 
they, they're always accompanied by headlines like this, Turkey spells her own doom. Um, and it is, it is watched intently. But the United States stays out of the war. And other things that become very important in the United States, in certain parts of the United States, are the, when the reports of the Armenian massacres start showing up. They make it into the newspapers. In certain newspapers more than others, um, but, uh, but, they, but they do make it in. There are major fundraising drives right away um, uh, to help the Armenians, and also the Syrian famine. Um, and this is partly because Cleveland Dodge um, is from, knows the spirit Syrian famine because his son is there. His son is in Syria, in Lebanon. Um, the, after the United States declared <coughs> war on the Germans, the beginning of April, remember the United States uh, only declared war on the Germans, not, Austro, not the Austro-Hungarian Empire, not Bulgaria, uh, not the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans, at least at first, the Ottomans broke diplomatic relations with the United States uh, in, uh, on April 20th uh, of 1917, but the Ottomans um, and the Americans maintained uh, their neutrality throughout the rest of the war. And this was in the face of major, major calls for war by people like Theodore Roosevelt and, uh, and Wilson's uh, political rival, the Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. Um, but Wilson stopped doing this. I've written an article about this that was out in the fall. Um, and he mainly did this, I argue, uh, because missionaries um, lobbied against it. His friend Cleveland Dodge lobbied against it. Charles Crane lobbied against it. Uh, he also believed there was no rationale for the war with the Ottomans. The Germans had been sinking American ships. The Ottomans had done no such thing. Uh, he also argued that we can't get troops over there. He was told we cannot get American troops to the Ottoman lands, and so it would be very undignified to declare war on someone you could not actually fight. Um, and he also, I mean, he broadly hated the carnage of the war in general. It's part of the reason why he stayed out for so long. And he believed, he was told by the missionaries that massacres uh, of Armenians would get worse if the missionaries weren't there. To which a British diplomat replied, the Americans were there throughout all the preceding massacres, so that doesn't make any sense. So the Americans, though, a lot of them stayed there. The educators, the missionaries throughout the war, some left. Some of their schools ceased to be, some of them were requisitioned, particularly schools that were serving Armenian populations. Uh, but many stayed and tried to keep their institutions afloat. Uh, like Howard Bliss of the Syrian Protestant College, and others. And they were conducting lots of uh, relief work. This is a poster from 1918. You can see Cleveland Dodge's name down here. Um, and it is, it becomes Near East Relief. It still exists, the Near East Relief uh, Foundation. It started as the American Committee for Armenian and uh, Syrian Relief, ACASR, yes. Um, and uh, and it, it remained after the war. And they did raise, it was a huge humanitarian effort. There are many good books on this. All right, let's get into Wilson's ideas and how they applied to the Ottoman lands. At the end of the war, Wilson, um, or I should say during the war, one of the other reasons Wilson's ent Wilson entered the war is because he wanted to, quote unquote, have a seat at the table. He wanted to be part of this grand peace conference that was definitely going to happen at the end of this horrible uh, of this horrible conflagration, and he thought it was going to be historic, and he wanted to be there, and he had some ideas about how to make World War I not happen again. And one thing he did realize, though, is that Woodrow Wilson, to his credit, knew he didn't know anything about the world. He was not a traveler at all. 
He knew he knew he knew nothing about the parts of the world that would have to be discussed at this post-war peace conference, including the Ottoman land. So he set up this thing called the Inquiry, where he got American uh, he got American academics to study the parts of the world that he was going to have to have an opinion on and give him his opinion. This is essentially what the 14 points is, at least the parts of them that are specifically about um, parts of the world that he knew nothing about. These are distillations of inquiry, uh, inquiry reports with his own spin on things. Uh, and it, Wilson also found out that Americans had very little expertise on the Middle East at this point, at least in, in, acad in academia, um, but that's, that is another story. Uh, so let me get to this thing that I'm calling the Wilsonian imaginary here. And I started to, to talk about this a little bit. What is the Wilsonian imaginary? And I would say there's three parts to this. The, the first one is Wilson himself, what he said about this new world order, how he thought about the new world order, and how war could be uh, avoided in the future. And then there are these people who are tasked with figuring out how to implement this new world, world order and what to advocate for. And these statements, as we know, had a lot of ambiguities, contradictions in them, so people had to grapple with these things and figure them out. And then there was how people all around the world imagined what Wilson was saying meant for them. And this is very important as well because there were gulfs between these things. All right, so in Wilson's own word, what did he mean? And this is something, I'm going to go into this in some sort of detail, or in some detail here, because there have been many misconceptions about this. And in his 14-point speech, the famous 14-point speech, point five was about colonial holdings and about things that, lands that were going to be reapportioned. And he said this, that... On colonial claims, in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight, equal weight with the equitable claims of governments whose title is to be determined. Equal weight. One thing should recognize here, and Wilson would have thought was recognizable, was that the populations of these people from the colonial claims were different from the equitable claims of government whose title is to be determined. These governments were European governments. Maybe if you read point five, you might not see this, but Wilson thought it was clear. In the four points address, which is not uh, looked at as much, but was seen by people in the Ottoman lands and actually cited uh, by them, uh, about a month later, he said this, national aspirations must be respected. People may now be dominated and governed only by their own consent. Self-determination is not a mere phrase. It is an imperative of action which statesmen will henceforth ignore at their own peril. People often cite the second part of this, but not the first. The first is important. People may now be dominated and governed. He's saying people can still be dominated. This is a point at which, though, you can see somebody very easily mistaking what he's saying. I can be dominated only by my own consent. I can be governed by somebody only by my own consent. Well, I don't give my consent. Therefore, I should have the right to be independent. Right? This, though, is not what Wilson meant. 
He meant that people can still be dominated and people should still be dominated, certain people. And we'll come back to this. But they maybe should have a say in who dominates them. Yeah. This is what he meant. On the third point of the four-point uh, speech, he says this. Every territorial settlement involved in this war must be made in the interests and for the benefits of the population concerned. Now this is where he's getting away from stricter, older school European imperialism. This is where he thinks he's making a difference, right? And in some of the previous statements, people need to be asked who they want to govern them. It's going to be European powers, but they should at least be asked. You know, people will be dominated, but they should have a choice in who dominates them. And eventually people should be taught how to possibly be independent, certain people, but they should have a choice in who teaches them. Right? He carried on to say this. Uh, and actually, I should stop here and say one, one more thing. Uh, this is very much part of the infantilization of colonial populations, right? It's very parental, right? You're going, European powers, you need to start making decisions in the, in the best interests of the people who you're governing, right? This is what I tell my daughter quite a bit, right? This is for your own good sort of thing, right? You need to start thinking about them more. You can still make those decisions, but you need to think about them more. He also said this. He said, and this is important, all well-defined national aspirations shall be accorded the utmost satisfaction. All well-defined national aspirations shall be accorded the utmost satisfaction that can be accorded them without introducing new or perpetuating old elements of discord and antagonism that would be likely in time to break the peace of Europe. Right, of Europe. And consequently, the world, which he saw happen, which was his reading of World War I. But there is a question of where he doesn't just say national aspirations. Anybody who has national aspirations, should they be able to have a country? In Wilson's mind, absolutely not. You need to have well-defined national aspirations. And where did these well-defined national aspirations exist? Here, in Europe. Again, you could be forgiven for reading this differently if you're reading it from the Ottoman lands. And we'll talk about that a little more. Let's get to the Ottoman lands here. What did Wilson say about the Ottoman lands? Well, we have the famous point 12. Um, point 12, which he says the Turkish portions of uh, the present Ottoman Empire should be assured a secure sovereignty. But other nationalities which are now under Turkish rule should be assured an undoubted security of life and an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. There's no independence there. There's no self-governance there. These are terms without really any specific political formation attached to them, right? What does a secure sovereignty mean? You know, absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. These are strange words. And then you get to the League of Nations Covenant, which uh, Wilson was fairly proud of. A number of his ideas got in there. And again, I read this at the beginning, so I won't read it out again. But he stresses here that these people, the Arabs, the Armenians, they're at a point where we can you know, give them a chance, but they need to be taught because they don't know how to do this stuff themselves yet. They haven't proven this. But he thought in the grander racial hierarchy 
of the day, of which Wilson was a firm believer, racial, religio hierarchy, you could say, that the people of the Ottoman lands were not ready yet. They could be eventually. And this was a disagreement. Many people, even within this commission that I'm going to start talking about, disagreed about whether or not the Arabs would ever be fit to govern themselves, or any Muslim for that matter. Uh, so this is an important part of this I want to come back to. Though. Wilson had talk, been talking about equal weight for what the people of a region wanted um, with what the government wanted, what the governing European power would want. But now the League of Nations Covenant says the wishes of these communities must be a principal consideration in the selection of the mandatory. A principal consideration, not the principal consideration, not equal consideration, a principal consideration. There could be 19 other principal considerations. Right? You can see diplomatic wrangling going on here. The British fighting for things like this, the wording like this. And we'll come back to this racial hierarchy idea in a moment. But so let's get to this Wilsonian imaginary. How was it applied? It was applied in, by many different commissions, American commissions and other around the world. And the question to which how much the League of Nations actually represents this Wilsonian imaginary, um, it's a compromise, but it's, 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 not, it's, it's not far off. The King Crane Commission, well, we start with, uh, we start with the Paris Peace Conference. Start with uh, people talking about in about late January when they first start talking about what to do with the Ottoman Empire. And there had been many agreements that I'm sure we're familiar with during the war, like Spicot, Balfour Declaration, Hussein McMahon correspondence, even some other discussions in there as well about who gets what. The Italians had a peace. The Russians left the war, so they didn't get their peace anymore. Uh, and in the early days, in January, people started suggesting, well, why don't you come and ask us? And Americans started suggesting this, partly because Americans didn't know much about the region. Uh, and their inquiry, the inquiry did not produce great knowledge. They even admitted this. And so Amir Faisal here started suggest, suggested that we should have a commission. A couple of Americans suggested they had a commission of some sort. And eventually, Wilson was getting mad be partly because he was angry at Clemenceau and Lloyd George for squabbling over these agreements they had made because Clemenceau had been backtracking a little on certain things that he had said because his, he was getting pressure from his colonial lobby. It's a grander story there. But Wilson thought they were acting like imperialists and Wilson did not believe in old school imperialism. He believed in a modified version of it, which is expressed in the League of Nations. Um, and it is discussed. It comes back, comes around in early March, and in late March, Wilson goes. March Wilson goes back to the United States, comes back, and uh, says, "We need this commission." And the British and the French and the Italians say, "Okay, we'll do this." But there is major, there's major argument in the background saying, "No, we can't do this. We can't do this. You can't do this." They, the Americans, Woodrow Wilson, crafts the terms of what they were supposed to do. He names a couple of commissioners who we'll get to in a second. The British and the French kind of name their commissioners, but then they choose never to send them. After a long delay in late May of 1919, Wilson tries, he bluffs. He says, okay, I'm sending my people. Uh, you should send yours afterwards to the British and the French and the Italians. Uh, and the Americans went, and the British, the French, and the Italians decided not to send theirs a couple days later. And so it became a solely American commission. 
One other minor point to say before we leave Wilson here. Wilson himself, um, if you're going to look for what Wilson thought about the Ottoman lands and what he thought about what we now are thinking of the Middle East, and you're looking through all of his documents and stuff like I've been doing for the last 10 years, you're going to come to the conclusion, hopefully I think you would like I did, that if you want to know what Wilson thought about the King Crane Commission, or excuse me, the Ottoman lands, you'll come to the conclusion that he didn't really think about them much. He didn't have any idea what was going on there. He barely talked about them. They barely, barely made it into his notes. He just parroted the same old, the Ottoman Empire needs to be dissolved eventually sort of thing. All right, so the King Crane Commission. Here are the Americans who went. Not all of them, but most of them, the, the central ones. You have Charles Crane, who I've mentioned. Wilson asked him to go. He didn't want to go, but he decided to go because Wilson asked him. You have uh, Henry King, who was the president of Oberlin College in the United States, a small liberal arts school. And uh, he had missionary connection. He uh, was uh, in Paris with the YMCA. Charles Crane was just hanging out, talking to people in Paris and just watching things. He was very wealthy and didn't have to work. But then you had their three advisors. You had uh, William Yale here, who was, um, had worked for Standard Oil in the region before the war. He was then attached to the uh, British Expeditionary Force there as an American observer. You had Albert uh, Lebayer, it's very hard to pronounce, I think it's Lebayer, um, who is uh, a professor at the University of Illinois. He had worked at Robert College. He had written a history on the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and you had George Montgomery, who was born in Turkey. He was born in Maresh, now Karaman Maresh. Uh, to missionary parents, and he had been back and forth to the empire quite a bit and spoke Turkish. And this is where they went. Now, they landed in Istanbul, but they didn't spend much time there. They decided to get down to Greater Syria because this was the biggest flashpoint of, between the British and the French, and, and it's where Faisal was sort of representing. And these are the main cities they went to, and here is the path, approximately, that they took. They spent most of their time in Greater Syria. They spent some time in Istanbul too, but their report is much less substantial there. And they collected petitions. A lot of them were oral petitions. They spoke to many, many different people, mostly elites, mostly notables of the region. And they collected petitions that looked like this. Some of them still survive, like this one. Maybe about 40 or 50 of them still survive. This is uh, Belan, I'm not sure, I think it's, it's spelled in Turkish now, B-E-L-E-N, um, Sir Alexandretta. Uh, and you would have the, this was fairly normal, the stamps at the end, these, these were the requests. And I'll get to the entirety of their requests in a moment. And so we have here uh, these people coming to see them. What were they asking for? There was a major moment, and this has been documented very well, and needs to be documented even more. The people of the region, Amir Faisal knew the commission was coming. He came back and, and risked all of his political capital in the region. If you don't know much about Amir Faisal, for those you don't know, he was uh, a leader of the Arab revolt, son of uh, Sharif Hussein. Um, but he had very, his, his ties were around Mecca, in and around Mecca, not in greater Syria, right? He didn't have that much clout in this region. A lot of people in Palestine said they didn't even really know who he was to the King Crane Commission. They didn't know, they'd heard of him, but they didn't know his connection. 
And so he came back saying, look, I did this for you. We're going to have this commission come and ask you what you want for your political future. And it could mean we get something pretty great. And so people got ready for this commission. They thought it was going to be very important. And it was a huge moment. People knew when the commission was coming. In Tripoli, Tarablis, they were driving around in, in Fords. And here we are in Amman, a very small town at this point. And there they are in Bethlehem, and in Aleppo, and in Dara, in Latakia. They were, driving, they were floating around on Allenby's yacht at this point, General Allenby's yacht. And they found right away that people were citing Wilson to them, back to them. They were citing a lot of the things that I cited to you, the 14-point speech, the four-point speech. And to them, this meant that Wilson was their advocate. And this also meant, from what they had heard about the King Crane Commission, that the King Crane Commission, if they told them the right things, the King Crane Commission was supposed to be their advocate. Uh, there's another question here. This is an academic question. There's a rather famous book written maybe 10 years ago called The Wilsonian Moment. Some of you might be familiar with it by Eretz Manella, where he claimed that a lot of uh, Wilson's pronouncements spurred a lot of revolutions around the world or attempted revolutions, anti-colonial moments around the world. Um, I think that there would have been anti-colonial moments around the world after World War I, with or without Wilson. But people from the region thought they had found a champion in Wilson and, and in the King Crane Commission. They miscalculated, right? They miscalculated. And in the end, the King Crane Commission, it was ignored. It was ignored. It came back and it was ignored. Let me go to one major important piece here. The Damascus Congress, the Syrian Congress, it's called a number of things at the end of June and the, end, and the beginning of July. Uh, this is a portrayal of a Congress. We all know the movie. Uh, and for whatever cinematic merit this movie has, there are many egregious portrayals of the region in this era. Um, and this, I think, is probably the most. It's probably the worst. Because the Damascus Congress, before the King Crane Commission got to Damascus, met and deliberated and came up with a grand political compromise. That was the Damascus program. And people disagreed in the Damascus Congress, but they came up with some. And the King Crane Commission, Commission recognized this. They said it was the most substantial political document they found. They were really impressed with it. And they asked for this, that they requested independence, Unity for Greater Syria and end, end of Zionism and no French occupation. No Zionism. Zionism needs to stop. I haven't talked about that that much, but there was great resistance to anything, uh, or to Zionism throughout the region. And they said this in the end of their, in the end of their, uh, the, the Damascus program, that the lofty principles proclaimed by Wilson encourage us to believe that determining the, de the determining consideration in the settlement of our own future will be the real desires of our people. The determining consideration, not a principal consideration. They were reading it as the, a, the determining consideration. 
and that we may look to President Wilson and the liberal American nation who are known for their sincere and generous sympathy with aspirations of weak nations for help in the fulfillment of our hopes. Uh, they, they obviously hadn't had correspondence with the Filipinos or the Native Americans to see how Americans treated some of their colonial peoples. They actually continually, at least in many occasions, cited how the Americans, how well the Americans had treated the, the Filipinos. They did. This came out in testimony from the land. So I just wanted to look at this gulf uh, between the, what the majority of the people of the region asked for versus what the King Crane Commission said. And I think the gulf between these two shows you the, uh, the difference between the Wilsonian imaginary, what Wilson thought about the war. Because I am also, I'm, I'm saying here that I think the King Crane Commission report translated Wilson's ideas pretty well, pretty well. And so in the region, they asked for independence with the possible assistance of the US. Not a mandate, but technical and economic assistance. This is broadly what was asked for. The King Crane Commission argued that, or stated that nearly all lands should be under US mandate. Nearly all the lands, with the exception of Mesopotamia, Iraq, which was already given to the British in their mind. They argued, people of the regions that argued that in the Damascus program and elsewhere, especially in the Damascus program, uh, that the region should remain unified under some sort of constitutional monarchy under Amir Faisal. There was an exception to this in Palestine, like I mentioned. They, he was not really discussed much in Palestine in the request. And the King Crane Commission agreed with it. People of the region, the majority, with the exception in Lebanon of the Maronite Christians, largely, and some other groups, said that France was hated and should not be allowed into the region. There was some um, uh, very, <laughs> the St. Frank Commission repeated this almost word for word. A number of the people did not like the French on the commission. And the people of the region, in large numbers, uh, argued that Zionism could never work and that it would be resisted. And the King Crane Commission wrote this in their report with many of the King Crane Commission actually going to the region pro-Zionist. Now some in the King Crane Commission, a couple people, uh, two of the technical advisors were pro-Zionist. And they wrote dissenting reports saying that the Jews could modernize the land in ways that the Arabs never could. And so they should be allowed to go and modernize it. Uh, but the King Crane Commission, which was three of the five main members' uh, opinions, um, agreed with people of the region. All right, so I'm going to wrap up here. It's a fairly long wrap up. Uh, but uh, this is Kunaitra. Uh, and there are a couple members of the King Crane Commission in here. This is Lawrence Moore, who hurt himself on about five occasions during the uh, trip. He was there. Uh, he got hit by a car. And there are only about 500 cars in the Ottoman Empire. And, he got hit by one. Uh, and let's see, this is George Montgomery. Um, they all tried to look as official as possible, even though they didn't have uniforms except for William Yale. Uh, Kunaitra is a, a town that is, like many towns, that exhibits uh, the tragedy of the last hundred years uh, since the King Crane Commission went there, went to the region. What happened to it in the 1967 war, 1973, um, it was essentially a shell of a town. And I was in Israel a few years back for a academic trip and I was on the Golan Heights, and I was looking at Kunaitra. You look right down on it. And there was fighting going on. This town 
is deserted, yet there's still fighting going on there. It is exemplary of the tragedy that has befallen much of the region. So as I mentioned, the King Crane Commission, they came back, they delivered their report, they let the British and French see it, and then it sat on a shelf for three years. King and Crane didn't really talk about it. Uh, it was eventually published in newspapers, eventually the New York Times, uh, and there was a little debate about it. And it, has po it pops up in books and whatnot, but it's more or less an academic controversy at this point. And that's not well put, but I'll stick with that for now. Um, so the commission was uh, ignored by the people it was meant to influence. And the United States Senate also chose not to approve the Treaty of Versailles, uh, and the U.S. did not formally join the League of Nations, thus losing another possible way to influence the future of the Ottoman lands. The French and the British got what they wanted in greater Syria, and violence ensued almost immediately. Violence that has continued to this day with various twists and turns. Applying the Wilsonian imaginary in the Ottoman lands showed the difficulties posed by certain parts of this project. Uh, and the application of these ideals often led to more questions than answers. Who constituted a national group? Who deserved autonomy or a nation? Who could be taught? How large should the new countries be? What would you do with the rather tiny or even sizable minorities in areas dominated by other peoples? The Assyrians, the Kurds, what to do with them? Who should teach them to self-govern and how should that be structured? And if the number of, of, of people who identified with a particular group was important in this process, and it was, they liked their numbers, there are a lot of numbers in their report, should a group like the Armenians receive less consideration in this process because large numbers of their population were killed during the war? The American perspective on the Wilsonian imaginary was steeped in scientific racism and deep religious prejudice. It was obvious to Wilson and the King Crane Commission that the people of the Ottoman lands were not ready to self-govern. Some members believed in the tutorial nature of mandates and believed that the people of the region could learn how to govern uh, themselves. Uh, other members of the commission thought that people in the Ottoman lands, particularly the Muslims, could not learn to govern themselves. There were disagreements about the nature of the global religi religio-racial hierarchy within the commission and the abilities of the people on various rungs of this hierarchy. But there was no debate about whether or not such a hierarchy existed. Seen from a century on, it might seem that this should have been a moment that these educated Americans could have started to question this idea that there was an immutability or semi-immutability to the categories that they believe existed in the world, such as ethnicities, races, even religions. Instead, they could only view the messy and complex society that they saw before them through the neat prism and categories into which they divided the world. In most ways, the King Crane Commission report shows us that imperial pronouncements say more about the mentality of the pronouncer than the people focused on in the pronouncement itself. Over the years, many people have accused Wilson of not backing up his beliefs with actions and abandoning the people of the world he purported to support. After studying Wilson directly for a long while now, I believe it's important to take Wilson's ideas directly from his words and understand what he meant by those words. We can blame Wilson for presenting his views in a way that could be mistaken by others worldwide. 
His own Secretary of State did this while he was in office and others. And he did not correct people, which a couple people have pointed out either. We can blame him for harbor harboring a racial, racially hierarchical view of the world, though scientific racism was the norm in this era. Right? And it's not to excuse it, but it was the academic truth to most people. There, was dissenting, there were dissenting voices. We can't blame him for not advocating things that he didn't believe. But we can blame him for not advocating things that he did believe. The King Crane Commission report, as I've been saying, is arguably pretty close to the views he espoused, espoused I believe. But Wilson's ill health, you know, he never read the report, probably, and the lack of leverage in the Ottoman lands, his lack of leverage, led, to him, uh, led him to drop the Ottoman lands as a major concern. Even by June, when the King Crane Commission wasn't even halfway through their journey, he thought things in the Ottoman lands, the Americans weren't going to have much uh, say in the Ottoman lands. Uh, this was a problem. It was a major concern. Also, this one thing that I was talking about before I should add. The United States did not declare war in the Ottoman lands. Therefore, the United States did not have a seat at the table at the peace conference when it came to the Ottoman Empire. Wilson was allowed in. Anything he said during the peace conference um, about the Ottoman lands was prefaced by, I know it's not my place to say, but if you, uh, but I, but, blah, blah, blah. And I know if you, I know it's not my place to give my opinion, but if you ask my opinion, he had to couch things like this because legally he didn't really have standing. All right. In many ways, people, people have constructed their own imaginaries about Wilson's belief. Yasser Arafat, in his famed 1974 United Nations speech, stated that Wilson's doctrine of the, quote, 14 points remains subscribed to and venerated by our people. Uh, Naguib Mahfouz, in his novel, The Seventh Heaven, condemned Wilson to a version of hell because he neglected to use American power to implement his sacred principles. And the last part was a quote. Many believe that Wilson betrayed both himself and the colonized peoples of the world. Uh, you, you can make this case in certain instances, like by when he allowed the Greeks to land in Smyrna in 1919, which is something of a, uh, uh, something of, um, it was countering the Italian landings in Marmara that were semi-secret. Uh, or, for example, you can uh, say when he gave the Japanese Shantung, the German colony of Tsingtao, Shantung. In the case of the Ottoman lands, Wilson did fight for his beliefs. Uh, <coughs> with the leverage that he had, and he even created more leverage with the King Crane Commission. He sort of made, he conjured the King Crane Commission up, this inter supposed to be inter-ally commission. But we need to acknowledge that his beliefs, uh, in, his beliefs in terms of independence and self-governance were as follows. <laughs> Ethnic nations on top of the ratio religio religious hierarchy, i.e. those in Europe and in its various colonies around, deserve to have self-governing states. Whereas some of those beyond Europe and lower on the ratio religious hierarchy, including the Ottoman lands, deserved to be able to have a say in which power educated them towards self-government and conceivably independence eventually. eventually. It is important to note that despite the people of the region overwhelmingly telling the commission that they wanted independence, the authors of the King Crane Commission report did not recommend this and essentially did not consider it. They did not believe that these people were ready to self-govern, but did believe that they should be able to choose which world power should rule over them. For all those who argue 
uh, that the King Crane Commission was prophetic, it is important to note that it was also imperialist inasmuch as the League of Nations mandates were, in actuality, imperial formations of a sort. Compromised imperial formations, but at least looking at the, the prism of the Ottoman lands, they remained imperial. Even though the King Crane Commission's application of the Wilsonian imaginary did not come to fruition, the simple act of attempting to do so brought great change to the region. The summer of 1919 was a fateful moment in the history of Greater Syria. With new political realities coming into being, the population of the region was forced to make choices of individual and collective communal identity. In general, the, the King Crane Commission, the visit of the King Crane Commission was a political moment that hastened a broad communal and political realignment, particularly in Greater Syria and significantly decreased the likelihood of peaceful coexistence, particularly between Jews and other populations of the region. There is something that I haven't discussed here much. There was, the Zionist Commission did send around uh, agents to make sure that all Jewish communities of the region uh, backed Zionism. And they were largely successful in this. If, say, the Jewish community of Damascus said they wanted nothing to do with Zionism, the agent um, was able to get them to say at least no, not to oppose it. And so it started a division in some way. So to jo John Milton Cooper, a grand scholar of Wilson, has argued that Wilsonianism, Wilsonianism won by losing. One need only look at the King Crane Commission report to wonder if any of the bleakest moments in the Middle East's ensuing century could have been avoided if different paths had been taken. Indeed, it seems like in a number of cases, almost any other future may have been preferable. The King Crane Commission report and the Wilsonian imaginary it represented endure as bleak reminders that perhaps it didn't have to be this way. Thank you. And, uh, I believe we do have time for questions. Oftentimes in these situations, I have a uh, mediocre answer. I think of a good one tomorrow. Uh, but I will do my best to, to answer the question. Well, you already answered my question, but that is a, a fact that um, it, it got always understood when America entered the First World War, she never declared war on Ottoman Turkey. And yeah. um, that was, I don't know how that influenced diplomacy afterwards. I mean, England, America had never been at war. In fact, the last war, Turkey and America, they were allies in the Korean War. I think they were allies mm -hmm. the Yeah. Yeah, you still see that when you wander around Turkey that people are very proud of having served in the Korean War. Um, but uh, yes, the, it did have a major impact. It was interesting, in the last year of the war, uh, there, were, there were great pushes by the British and the French, um, particularly when the Italian front almost collapsed. Uh, and uh, there was great distress uh, that the, if the Italians collapsed, then the, Western, the, the troops would float to the Western Front and, uh, and there were going to be problems. And so this is actually when uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson declared war on Austro-Hungarian Empire in December of, of 1917. Um, and he had in an early draft of that speech included the Ottomans and the Bulgarians in it. But he crossed them out and did not include them. There were some timely interventions by Cleveland Dodge and some other people. Uh, and Throughout, though, 1918, uh, there was a push by the British and the French to get the Americans to come into the war against the Ottomans. And many pushes and, and many cables sent back and forth, but Wilson resisted until the very end of the war when it was clear the Ottomans were exhausted and were going to uh, 
uh, were going to surrender. Then Lloyd George started saying, don't talk to the Americans, don't let them anywhere near the armistice talk because we don't want them to have, I think the term was something like just their, their hand in the pie or something like this. Uh, so, and that, that was very much the case uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the, the Paris negotiations. Although Wilson was powerful enough because of his rhetoric, because of what he represented, because of his popularity, that you couldn't just say, oh, sorry, Woodrow, could you leave the room because we're going to talk about the Ottomans now. That, that they, they couldn't do that. So they allowed him there. They, they allowed him to have a say. And they even, this, this commission, went in the form that it did. I think the case of uh, Wilson uh, would illustrate the distance between what Americans, American elite say and what they actually do. And you did explain some of that, but it's good to fill a little bit about who Wilson was. Domestically, he created the Red Scare. The Palmer raids his uh, justice uh, secretary uh, became uh, infamous for going into houses and uh, uh, arresting socialists. His, uh, the opponent, socialist opponent went to jail for many years, Eugene Dips. Yep. Last year, Princeton University, which he was the president of, removed everything related to Wilson because of his racism. No yes. more statutes or photographs. <coughs> Foreign policy, he invaded six or seven uh, Latin American countries, <laughs> occupied them, and said, quote, I will teach these Latin Americans to elect good people, good men. <laughs> Yes. In yes. the League of Nations, he opposed racial equality, which was presented by the Japanese. That's correct, yes. Look at the irony. A president of Princeton University, former president, who did he send as Crane and King? Did he send an anthropologist, a historian, yeah. A political scientist, as he was, a professor of, he said, a Protestant minister and a businessman, mm -hmm. Christianity and commerce. Is that different from the British yeah. and the French colonialism? Uh, no. Yeah, we, we, the Wilson imaginary, Wilson imaginary has to be exposed as not something positive. It illustrates the distance of what people say and what people do. No, it was not positive. It was negative for everybody in the Middle East. He yeah. said so. Well, I would, he said so, thank you. Yeah, but he I didn't would, say it strongly <laughs> enough. I, I would probably, I would probably you, argue you just... Did, I know. Uh, cognitive dis dissonance creates a lot of tension. and uh, But, no, Wilson was not positive for the world at the time. He was more racist even by the standards of the United States at the time. Yeah, His opponents time. were less racist than he was and more progressive than he was. The trick is, and it's 100 years, maybe even 200 years, 
of Americans saying something and doing the opposite. Yeah. What I would say to that is a slightly more nuanced view that I was trying to put up here. Um, I think Wilson was an I think Wilson was an imperialist, and what he was proposing in this Wilsonian imaginary was an imperialism light, where the people of the region were consulted in some way, right? And so, if that is anyhow better than standard imperialism of the late 19th and early 20th century, then maybe we have something there that's slightly better. I would also say that we have to understand Wilson for what he believed, and I think you understand him as an imperialist. And I think when you look at what he said, he didn't believe self-determination meant that people should be able to determine their self-government, their own government. He did not believe that, right? And that's what he said. He should have corrected people. He should have corrected people when they started taking him. Uh, and it was actually the, the fault of his publicist, George Creel, who spread his speeches around the world. And they wound up in all these newspapers. Uh, and so and some people have argued that he had sort of a messiah complex once these things started being attributed to him, um, that he didn't want to tell people that he wasn't the Messiah. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, so I, I think everything, you're absolutely right uh, that in, in everything you said. I mean, this is all absolutely true. Um, and I'm not arguing that Wilson was anything but an imperialist. But there were certain things that the League of Nations mandates actually did what they said they were going to do. Things might have been different. They might have been different. Maybe. Maybe not. Other questions? Yep. You mentioned that at a certain point he decided that the Middle East wasn't that important to the U.S. and mm -hmm. kind of abandoned the idea of why do you think the, the, the U.S. or he thought like this? And uh, at the moment, what were the U.S.'s priorities regarding foreign policy? It was not the Middle East. Yeah, Wilson's priorities was to get back home after he signed it. He left the next day, signed the Treaty of Versailles, and to get back home and to fight for this because he knew he was already getting resistance. To, uh, to this treaty because the Senate would have to approve it and then he would ratify it. And so that's really, he dropped most other things, even domestic agendas, to get back there and to fight for, uh, fight for this uh, um, treaty. Uh, and he gave many, many speeches. And there's a great book about this by this John Milton Cooper, I think it was called Breaking the Heart of the World. Um, and uh, so for him, the Ottoman lands, I would say, were never as much of a priority in general, but he did hate the fact that the secret agreements that he continually called into question and said were terrible for the world um, were essentially uh, the British and French were still trying to act on them, on their basis. And so he was reacting to that in some way with the formation of this, uh, this commission. But when it came time for something else, after he signed the Treaty of Versailles, it became time to move on to something else like the League of Nations, which is what he really wanted. Lloyd George at the beginning of uh, the peace conference, this is one of the reasons why they went to the League, started talking about the League of Nations first. The Paris Peace Conference, Lloyd George said, let's just get Wilson as League of Nations and then we can move on to the stuff that really matters. To paraphrase, he said something like this. Uh, but Wilson really cared about the League of Nations. He thought all other problems that weren't solved in Paris could be solved by the League of Nations once it started functioning. And so his personal, very specific focus on the King Crane Commission was maybe fleeting, uh, or excuse me, the Ottoman lands was maybe fleeting, you could argue. Um, a, he didn't talk much about it later in his administration um, in the least, but he was also very ill, not talking much about anything at all. Um, did I answer both your questions? Did I miss one? Yeah, okay. Um, other questions? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, two, two questions. Could you say something about the role of the missionaries? Uh, 
uh, who were active at the time, particularly because they're on AUV. Mm. And what was their uh, connection to or influence on the, uh, the commission? Uh, you know, people are not. Yeah. They say something about that, because I know that's a controversial issue. It is. It sounds sort of. And also, could you comment on the, on the analysis of Wilson by Freud and Bullitt, uh, which, which shed some light on, on Wilson's character and any weaknesses? Mm. Yeah, I mean, Wilson is one of these. I'm not, I'm not totally well prepared to comment on the more psycho histories, which all actually uh, scholars engage in in some way with Wilson, right? You have these huge books on him and multi-volume books on him. And uh, not, maybe not all, but many of them do uh, discuss certain elements of his psyche and things like, for example, Wilson uh, did not enter World War I earlier because he grew up in the, uh, the war-torn uh, South uh, and the Reconstruction eras. He saw what war could do. He actually said this a few times, too. Um, and on top of that, more interestingly uh, to me, I think, medically speaking, John Milton Cooper, I've said his name three times now, um, was, has looked at the idea that Wilson had some earlier strokes. And Wilson, especially in the fight for the Treaty of Versailles, had been unwell throughout the latter part of the Paris Peace Conference. And Apparently, if you have a stroke, you looked at medical records, if you have a stroke, you become more set in your ways. Wilson did not compromise one thing with the Paris Peace Conference and the, and the Treaty of Ver, uh, Versailles. Um, let me get back to the missionaries, though, because this is, this is really interesting. Some people have called the King Crane Commission a missionary conspiracy, right? Uh, and so, and, and in this way, it was an anti-Zionist missionary conspiracy. They're sort of linked together, the, most historians who, who talk about um, this bring the bring these together. Uh, so you you can look at this and you can think about it. The, Crane had missionary ties, but he was no missionary himself. King had missionary ties, um, but no, again, not a missionary. Um, uh, you know, Crane would sort of laugh if you called him a religious person. Uh, George Montgomery had very strong missionary ties. That one of the advisors, and he wound up being pro-Zionist. Right, and uh, you had Caleb Gates, the president of Robert College. You know, an educator. Uh, an educational institution run largely by people who would consider themselves missionaries was against the King Crane Commission going at all for various reasons. There were a number of, like if you're looking at missionaries, there were a number of missionaries who said this was a good idea, a number of missionaries who said this was a bad idea. Um, I've found no evidence of any sort of grander missionary conspiracy. I think a lot of that, um, certain historians have read back in the um, the, the children of the missionaries in the 1940s and 1950s who wind up being in the State Department and being very anti-Zionist. They're trying, I think some historians are trying to push that argument that these, these children of missionaries were anti-Zionist, therefore their predecessors were anti-Zionist too, may have been anti-Zionist. I don't think the evidence, uh, 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 there's evidence out there to prove that there was any sort of real missionary conspiracy um, uh, as far as getting the King Crane Commission done. Some missionaries did want it to happen, some didn't. Other questions? Okay, we have one more. Go in time for one more. Okay. I'm just going to come back to your what you call the inquiry against academics. When was that set up? Did it produce any reports? Yeah. Yeah. The inquiry, I actually have a, a talk that I've been giving recently about the inquiry and the, their expertise on the, uh, um, on the Ottoman lands. Uh, and they, um, they had 10 experts at least. It was set up in 1917, shortly after uh, the U.S. entered the war. 
and most of its papers, there's one book on it, and, or one and a half, and most of its papers are at Yale, I believe. A lot of what, what still exists, at least on the Middle East side, is at, that's at Yale. And the 10 or so people they had doing the Middle East stuff, uh, the Ottoman land stuff, um, two of them were Persian philologists. One of them was a, a historian of ancient Egypt, an archaeologist. And the rest of them were geographers who knew stuff about Peru and, and all kinds of sort of random things. The US did not have the expertise in this era. They could have called on missionaries, and they did ask missionaries to give them information. Because the missionaries were the Americans who were there, who had been there, and increasingly more diplomats. But of course, a lot of the diplomats were missionaries. Uh, and so they asked certain people to give them um, information about what they thought of uh, the Middle East. But broadly speaking, um, there is a rather funny line about a year after, nine months after the, uh, the um, Middle East section of the inquiry um, came out with its report. One person read all the reports and he kept ticking, going through the reports and ticking off reports saying this report is practically worthless, this report makes no sense, and so on. And then there was an official report to Wilson saying we are not prepared to, uh, now at this moment to speak with any sort of authority on Middle Eastern matters. Um, so it's an in, it was an interesting moment in and of itself. It was only in the 1920s and the 1930s that these grander, more Orientalist-style programs start popping up at the University of Chicago, really. There had been a little bit before that, but, but then other places around the United States, too. Um, so, uh, but the inquiry is an interesting topic just to see how Americans were framing their knowledge of the world and understanding the world. Okay, uh, Andrew, thank you very much for... Uh, not only this talk, but of course the earlier talk, we had you up here for about three hours, so I'm, I'm really amazed at your stamina. But thank you very much for actually providing a perspective that I think only here is new, stimulating, uh, maybe a little bit upsetting, uh, maybe destroy some of the ideas that we've had in the past. But I'd just like to give you a quick hand for a very interesting evening. Thank you. Thank you.